Jeff Wagner, WTMJ 1207. So glad to have you with us. First of all, as we do for the first segment of pretty much every program, we are back up. Facebook Live. Go to Facebook. No, Melissa, don't go anywhere. Facebook.com slash 620 WTMJ. Facebook.com slash 620 WTMJ. You can play the parlor game. Did Jeff dress himself? Did his wife dress him today? Um, check that all out. Again, we do this for the first couple segments of today's program. Melissa, before you go away, I, this is this is sort of a generational test. Um, do you know who Robin Leach is? I do. Okay, you do. Okay, Gru, who is producing the show today and always, you through the glass window are shaking your head. You have no idea who Robin Leach is. Doesn't sound familiar. Lifestyles of the rich and famous. Lifestyle, mm-hmm. yes. Lifestyle. Now, and I, I understand now we're going to defend you, Gru, here as to why you don't know. Li- lifestyles of Robin Leach was from, from Great Britain. He was a newspaper guy who, who was into like celebrity stuff. And from 1985 until 1994, 1984 to 1995, he was the host of this syndicated show called Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, which was a really big show around here. Did you, did you grow up watching it, Melissa? I did, yeah. Yeah. And what he would do is he would find obscenely rich people. And, and they, they, there's no other way around it. And then yeah, they, they, they'd focus. They, they do. I think it was an hour long, wasn't it? I don't know if it was an hour. It was half an hour, hour long. I think it was on the weekends, wasn't it? Well, it was syndicated, so it okay. aired at all sorts of different yeah. times on different stations. But they would go out, and for example, he would find some rich person that lived on this several hundred foot yacht, and then you, you go and you'd look at, and then they just show you it, and it was everybody would kind of go. Wow, that's how that other point zero 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 one percent live. Yeah, I used to love the show. I was like, whoa, that's amazing. <laughs> you know, right. I'd sit there and be like, whoa. And, and of course, right. And of course, it, it was, I mean, the flip side of this is it, it, it just played into just greed because, yeah. you know, I mean, everybody would go, oh, look at this and that. And some people hated it because it played in that. But a lot of people were fascinated and had a run for, like I say, from 84 until 95. And after that, he kind of bounced around. He ended up, uh, and the reason I say this, I don't want to bury the lead. He passed away this morning. Yes. He passed away this morning morning but you know he, he ended up writing a celebrity column in las vegas for like the las vegas newspaper that out seems there. perfect for vegas it, well it, it does <laughs> it it does he passed away at the age of uh well next wednesday he would have been 77 oh. so he passed away at the age of 76 but okay that was the test you passed you remember lifestyles well, rich and you. famous he was only 70 you said 77 70 he would have been he 77 on wednesday he, I, he always seemed old but i mean guess growing <laughs> up he always seemed old to me but that's really young. That's not too old to die. I mean, that's too bad. Absolutely. No, yeah, no, thank you. That's really young. I mean. <laughs> right. And, and you, as you will notice, as you get older, you start to think, oh, <laughs> exactly. 75, that sounds really, really young. Yes, yeah. but he passed away this morning. He had apparently been ill. He'd been hospitalized since November 21st after suffering a, a pretty massive stroke. And so he passed away. So, um, But Robin Leach, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Um, sail on. All right. As we said at the start of the show, we are fa- we are live on Facebook.com, Facebook.com slash 620 WTMJ. I want to start off, um, and this is a Friday program. Sometimes our Friday program is a little bit different. We, we try to lighten things up as we go along, but we're, we're going to do some heavy lifting in the first couple segments of the program. The story that is getting a lot of attention is the horrible story out of Iowa involving the young college student Molly Tibbetts, who was apparently murdered brutally by a guy who was in the country illegally, who had been 
apparently working at a dairy out there and had been working at this dairy for a number of years, but he, he had false identification that he presented to the business owners and, and he had stayed there. And there's all this controversy about whether or not we should be talking about this. Is it appropriate to politicize this if we point out the fact that it was somebody who was in this country illegally who killed him? Is that, is that unfair? And, and I want to kind of cut to the chase on this because there was an opinion piece in the USA Today, today, that I want to share with you. And then we're going to open up the phone lines and get your reaction. Here's the headline. My son was murdered by an illegal immigrant. Neither he nor Molly Tibbetts deserve to die. And it's by a woman named Al Agnes Caboni. I don't need to imagine Molly Tibbetts' parents' pain. I live with it every day. Until Congress enforces immigration law, so will other parents. When what we all feared was finally confirmed that Molly Tibbetts, a promising 20-year-old college student, had indeed been killed, we all imagined the pain that her parents must have felt. I don't have to imagine that pain. I experienced it myself 16 years ago when my son, Ronald Da Silva, was murdered, and I have been living it with it every day since. Another thing I share with the parents of Molly Tibbetts is the gut-wrenching knowledge that our grief was entirely avoidable. Like Ronald, Molly was apparently murdered by an illegal immigrant. We don't know all the details about the alleged killer in Molly's case, but we do know he was here because our government neglected its responsibility to keep him out. Like my son's murderer, there were probably numerous opportunities at which his illegal presence could have been determined and acted upon. Instead of officials catching him using a false ID card and social security number, government at all levels apparently failed to see the obvious until it was too late for Molly and her family. The apologists for illegal immigrants will no doubt tell us that the vast majority of illegal immigrants are not violent criminals, and they are right. But that's not the point. They are all violating laws that exist to protect the best interests of the American people, which is reason enough to enforce our immigration laws. The fact that my son, Molly, Kate Steinle, Sarah Root, and many more whose names never made the headlines are dead is all the more reason why our immigration laws must be enforced. Much like the parents of children who have been gunned down in a string of recent school shootings, those of us have, who have needlessly lost loved ones at the hands of illegal immigrants utterly reject the thoughts and prayers of the political class that continues to turn a blind eye to mass illegal immigration. We demand action. We know there is no such thing as absolute security, but we also know that there are reasonable steps that can and must be taken to minimize the possibility that others will be victimized. In 2006, Congress overwhelmingly authorized construction of a security offense along our southern border. And then she points out that among the people who voted for this were Chuck Schumer and uh, then-Senator Barack Obama. Ten years later, Donald Trump ran and was elected on a pledge to fulfill that promise to the American people. Congress owes it to Ronald, Molly, and the other victims to fully fund this vital security now with no strings attached. We should not have to reward any group of illegal immigrants with amnesty in order to get our government to prevent more illegal immigrants from entering. All right. What the American people particularly those of us who have paid the ultimate price for our nation's unenforced immigration laws, demand is accountability from people who break our laws and from our elected officials. The same 
thing that we apply to people who otherwise commit crimes must be true for people who violate immigration laws. Molly didn't violate any laws, and neither did my son Ronald. And yet, because of a lack of accountability on the part of illegal immigrants and elected officials who are sworn to uphold our laws, Molly and Ronald are permanently separated from their families by six feet of dirt. This must stop now. Protecting the interests and security of the American people must be the first priority for federal, state, and local officials, not a bargaining chip for amnesty for illegal immigrants. It won't bring Ronald back to me or Molly back to her parents, but it will ensure that other families are spared our grief. And again, that's a piece written by a woman who lost her son in a murder that was committed by somebody who was in this country illegally. Let's open up the phone lines. Our number, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I understand there's some people who don't want to go down this route. There's some people who are uncomfortable. Well, murders are committed in this country every day, multiple murders in various cities. It's not fair to single out a particular murder and then try to use this as an argument for why maybe we need to be aggressively enforcing immigration laws. That's the argument. I will tell you, though, I reject this. I, I, I do. I, the fact that most people who are in this country illegally aren't murderers, which is something that is obviously the case, that to me is not a justification for saying, all right, that means we don't pay attention to our immigration laws. 414-799-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Your reaction to this opinion piece and to the immigration question in general, this puts a face Again, on the issue we discuss in just a minute. If you're on the line, please hold on. Once again, um, Facebook.com slash 620WTMJ. We're live streaming this segment at our number, 414-799-1620. This is Jeff Wagner. 1219, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Once again, we're live streaming, Facebook.com slash 620WTMJ. All right, I shared with you an opinion piece that appears in the USA Today written by a woman whose son was killed by somebody in this country illegally, saying that, you know, she holds people accountable and believes politicians are accountable for their failure to enforce immigration laws. All right, here's the first text I get. Legal citizens murdered people in America every single day. In fact, they do so at a higher rate than illegal immigrants. Turning this woman's tragedy into a racist political football is disgusting. So that's the thinking of some people. The fact that, well, you want to call out people who are in this country illegally, that means you're racist. Well, that's, I guess, one of the attitudes people have. I think, I think that's an appalling approach to a very, very real problem, which is why aren't we enforcing our laws? 414-799-1620. Let's start with uh, Mike, who's calling us from Minnesota. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hello, Jeff. You know, here's the problem. A lot of times these people are arrested, but because they are illegals, they will be deported or put into another uh, system, and then they're let go. They're not put in jail like somebody else would, and that's where the problem is. A U.S. citizen, if they break the law, they're going to be held, go to jail, and then that's it. Mm-hmm. If you're an illegal, it's a whole different ball game how you're treated. Well, and, I mean, thanks to call, and, of course, what, what ends up happening on many occasions is even if you are deported, even if you are sent back to whatever country it is that, that you've come from, and then you return again and again and again, there, there's very little consequence. Look, I, 
I, I, to me, this isn't a debate about the dreamers, the people who are legally registered and things like this. This is a debate about what do you do with the immigration laws that are on the books? And do we turn a blind eye to those laws and decide that we're not going to aggressively enforce them? Now, I think this actually, I think this situation raises a lot of issues, including the fact that, that how was this guy able to get a job and how was he able to work there for four years? And what sort of checks do we have? I mean, how can you give a false Social Security number, for example, and, and that not turn up? I mean, where did this Social Security number come from? How was it that this didn't get caught somewhere along the line? Because typically, if you would, we would think that if you put in a bogus Social Security number, at some point in time, that is going to bounce back, and you're going to be able to figure this out. The dairy this guy worked for, a matter of fact, when this first report came out, was the guy who owned the dairy, who is, by the way, a Republican, was very, very adamant. Well, he didn't, you know, this is, you know, he, he's here legally. We, we challenge this. Well, then it quickly turns out that, no, he wasn't because it was a phony Social Security number and a false ID. That's where I think this whole process starts. Let's start. Let's talk to Jason in Sheboygan. Jason, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. Um, two years ago, I, I called you on this matter, and, and I still believe but I feel um, until you start finding the employers for hiring these illegal immigrants, it's not going to stop. And I'm sorry, this farmer did not do his job, and I don't think he did enough homework to see. I still think he knew he was illegal, but he was working for cheap, so he kept them on. you got to find the employers, mink ranchers, factory workers, roofers, farmers. Then it will stop. If they have no employment, they're not going to come up here. Well, I, I think you're definitely onto something, but of course, keep in mind, anytime ICE does one of these raids, all we see is the one story after another, how we're, we're picking on these people, how dare ICE go out and try to enforce these type of laws, and we're picking on these people who are providing, you know, services that Americans won't do. Well, maybe that's, maybe that's true. But right now, the, the law says you're not supposed to be here. And I, I agree with you completely. I think what you need to do is start, again, focusing on the employers. And this isn't a question about using help from people who are immigrants. It's a question of identifying people who are illegally in right. this country. And that that's what I think gets lost in a lot of this. I agree 100% on that. Yeah. But they got to go to employers. It ain't the politicians. It's not the law. They're here illegally. Go after employers that are hiring them illegally. Right. Thanks. And then, then of course, and then the follow-up is, yes, then, then you catch the people who are here illegally. You have to end up doing something with them in order to hold them accountable. So, I mean, it, but, but yes, I, I agree with you. And again, I, I hear this a lot. Well, if you, if you dealt with the immigration problem, you, you wouldn't have employment. You, we wouldn't have be able to have the dairy industry or, or things like that, which again, miss, misses the point. If you want to change the immigration system, for example, to allow more people to come in on green cards or whatever so they can legally work in the dairy industry or legally work in whatever industry you might need people to do it, I have no problem with that. But but this underground economy and this underground situation of we're going to look the other way, that to me is what is completely and totally unacceptable because you have people roaming through, again, this country who are completely un- completely unaccountable. And in the case of, for example, the guy who allegedly murdered this young woman, we don't know who this guy was. 
We don't know what it, what his background would have been because he's here under an assumed identity. Let's talk to uh, Dan and Racine. Dan, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for taking my yes, call. Sir. You know, you're hitting the nail right on the head. This is what I, I'm, I'm talking about. They, the left says this guy paid his taxes. How could you pay it for four years when you don't even have the right person? The name's wrong. The photograph's wrong. And right. if this guy's getting handouts from the feds for his farm, this guy should be shut down. And like one of your callers said, this is a two-way street. The Democrats play it for the votes, and the Republicans are playing it for cheap labor. And we gotta we got to get this under control, no matter who it is as president, because American people are, are looking at it right in the face. Why they're defending this guy? I can't believe it. It, it makes no sense to me. It doesn't to me. No, thanks. It, it, it doesn't to me either, other than the comments. Well, you, you know, you, you can't use it. You shouldn't use this as a political foot. And this is racist. Well, first of all, I mean, enforcing laws is not racist. I'm sorry. If you want to throw that term around, you are the one that's got the problem. The, the, the idea that, well, we, you know, we, we can't talk about, you know, holding people accountable who are violating the laws because that's racist. That's terrible. No, it, it's about enforcing the laws. And to me, once again, this isn't about the whole immigration debate. It's about illegal immigration, which is a completely and totally different animal. Let's talk to, uh, let's see, we've got Forrest, who's calling us from Colorado. Forrest, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, I was just down on the border two weeks ago, and I talked to a a U.S. Border Patrol agent, and his his take on this was the fact that uh, Congress is not enforcing the in, the current immigration, employment, transportation, and housing laws. It, it's a $2,000 fine to hire an illegal alien and up to five years in prison, and none of these laws are being enforced. And if you don't enforce laws, whether it's on a highway, people will speed 80, 90 miles an hour. Uh, they'll speed right to a, uh, a school zone. Sure. Uh, these illegal aliens are continuing to come into this country by the hundreds of thousands, and there is no enforcement because both sides of Congress, whether it's Dems or Repubs, they're not, they're not literally pushing to get any of the E-Verify enforced. And so then we, the American people, are the ones that are paying the price, whether it's Kate Steinle or whether it's this Tibbetts girl. And we're tired of it, and yet it continues to go on because both of these people, both sides of Congress, are part and parcel of making sure that the immigration laws are not enforced. That's, that's our dilemma right now. And until we get we you know get rid of some of these people that simply we vote into office time and time again, whether it's a John McCain or a Schumer or any of the rest of them, we're not going to see any enforcement of our laws, and we're going to see all these tragedies continue. Thanks to call for us, and that that is look that 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 there's a lot of blame to go around, and I, I acknowledge that the immigration laws are a mess. I have been saying that for years, and candidly. Kind of unraveling it, you probably need smarter people than me. All right. But at the bottom, bottom line is these are the things that should not happen. You should not be able to come into this country illegally, start working at a place under a, provide a false ID, false picture ID and a phony social security number and be able to work at the place for four years and, and nobody catch you. And then of course, even if they catch you, then the question is what should end up happening to you? I understand, and I don't argue that most people who come into this country illegally—I'm not suggesting that they're guilt—they're going to be committing murders. That—that's not the case. But at the same time, we have laws in place, and this idea that we are not enforcing laws and not pe- holding people accountable is, to me, appalling. Twelve twenty-nine. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 
1236, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. First of all, thank you to everybody who donated to our sister TV state, sister radio station, KTI Country's effort to raise money for the MAC Fund. Karen D'Alessandro, our colleague, was sitting in various seats. My wife and I went down there yesterday afternoon. We, we, we did a section, helped participate in doing a section there. Um, this is my first offer, opportunity to see Pfizer Forum. I know it does sound funny because the, the Bucks keep telling us, don't say the. It's, it's not the Pfizer Forum. It's kind of like Lambeau Field or Miller Park. It is simply Pfizer Forum. Now, I'm having trouble with that because I keep thinking the Bradley Center or the Milwaukee Arena, but they get to call it what they want, and they call it Pfizer Forum. But in any event, it was the first time I was in there, and I think you are going to love it when you get in there. What the the I was in the lower bowl, so I, I don't know if this is true in the upper bowl as well, but I was in the lower bowl. The, the There's more leg room than there was at the Bradley Center, which is when you're like 6'1", that's something that's important to you. The seats were a little bit wider, which is, as you get older, that's something that gets important to you. It's, it's important to you. So I, I thought it was extremely, extremely comfortable. The other thing that I was really impressed with is is the various concourses. They are definitely, at least they seem to me, to be a lot wider than the ones that you had at the Bradley Center, because that was always the congestion. You go out at halftime, and it seemed, you know, everybody's like sardines trying to move through things. They looked like they were a lot wider, and my at least top of the you know, top of the line impression was that there seemed to be a lot more concession stands, and they're spaced out in a different way. I, I think it's going to be a great experience. I know they've got their their opening event, grand opening event coming up this weekend. It, it just looked tremendous. The the basketball court was not in, so I, I really didn't have an opinion on sight lines and things like that. But from a comfort level, looks like it is an absolute winner. Now I'm still not sold on the exterior of the thing, which. To me, just looks like a giant beer keg slash if Martians had their own version of a beer keg. But inside, no question about it, it's it's just tremendous. And uh, again, we appreciate everybody who donated to Karen's efforts. All right. We spent the first 30 minutes infuriating people who think that we should call out illegal immigrants for doing anything wrong and enforce our immigration laws. Let's flip the script. Today, there is an editorial in the Chicago Tribune. The Chicago Tribune, by the way, is is not one of these particularly lefty editorial boards. Most editorial boards of most newspapers, not all, but most, it's driven by a left-wing agenda. The Chicago Tribune, really not as much. Here is the headline in the Chicago Tribune, and I want to share this editorial with you, and then we're going to open up the phone lines. The headline. Trump's tenure in the White House is a disappointment and a disgrace. When your strongest statement of support for a president is that, quote, there are no charges against him, you've described a presidency under siege. So it is for the reign of President Donald Trump, who came into office a whirling, undisciplined outsider and is now paying the price for his unseemly behavior. Trump did nothing wrong, spokeswoman Sarah Huckabee Sanders told reporters Wednesday. She was in full damage control mode after an incendiary accusation by Michael Cohen, Trump's former attorney, that Trump was involved in hush payments to two women who said they had affairs with Trump. The legal risk to Trump is the timing and the purpose of the 2016 payments to porn actress Stormy Daniels and Playboy model Karen McDougal. If the money was spent to protect Trump's campaign from embarrassment, these were de facto campaign contributions and should have been treated as such. 
maybe, maybe not, but that's their point. Um, Cohen, on Tuesday, pleaded guilty to two violations of campaign finance laws. In doing so, he implicated Trump by claiming Trump directed Cohen to make the payments. The president denies the accusation, saying he learned of the deals later on. There's a lot more to uncover about what transpired between Trump and Cohen, so no point in rendering final judgment here. The same is true about the question of Russian interference in the election. Special counsel Robert Mueller will conclude his independent investigation and determine, among other things, whether Trump obstructed justice by firing FBI Director James Comey. Trump's presidency may survive these travails. Let's see what happens. Right Here's where it gets interesting. There is something we can say now. Trump's tenure in the White House is a disappointment and a disgrace. Presidents are elected to lead and achieve, to work tirelessly towards a vision of a better America. What we have with Trump is a distracted, ill-mannered figure who spends more time bashing perceived enemies on Twitter than uniting a nation that faces serious challenges at home and abroad. The connection between Trump's nasty streak and his potential legal jeopardy is his impetuous nature. Trump is a brash bully who sees himself as a political street fighter, a great counterpuncher, as he puts it. His pride in being a tough guy displays a recklessness that has no place in the Oval Office. The president who invited court fights by ordering an ill-considered immigration ban and insisted that there were some very fine people on both sides of a violent white supremacy rally is now caught up in legal battles over his behavior that imperils his presidency. Defending himself in a Fox News interview, Trump sounded like a nervous hoodlum as he attacked Cohen for flipping, that is, telling prosecutors what they want to hear in exchange for a lenient sentence. I've had many friends involved in this stuff, Trump said. It's called flipping, and it almost ought to be illegal. No surprise, really. Trump, who has never been accountable to the voting public, showed his colors on the campaign trail. Voters were attracted to his populist message and embraced or looked past his rough persona. In our view, expressed early on, he was unqualified for the presidency. He ceded moral authority last year when he failed to call out neo-Nazis. We judge his performance as president based on policy work, but Trump's behavior continually undermines his ability to get things done. Did Trump conspire to violate campaign finance laws? Did he obstruct justice by firing Comey? We'll see. Just as we'll see whether he retains or loses control of his presidency. That's an editorial in the Chicago Tribune today. All right. I want to invite your reaction. Our number, 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. The headline says, Trump's tenure in the White House is a disappointment and a disgrace. Agree, disagree, or is may, there may be a little bit of truth in both. 414-799-1620. Trump's tenure in the White House is a disappointment and a disgrace. That is their premise. What do you think? We discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Back with your calls and your text. It's 1244. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1247, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Not going gently, at least thus far, into the good weekend. The Packers go west for a preseason matchup against Jordy Nelson and the Oakland Raiders. Wayne and Larry are in the booth for the call of the game. It's game three of the exhibition season. Our Packers coverage starts at 6 o'clock this evening. Headline in the Chicago Tribune says, Trump's tenure in the White House is a disappointment and a disgrace. All right. Do you agree? Do you disagree with that? Is that an overstatement? Here's a text. The establishment 
still doesn't get it. All still doesn't get all the reasons. They point to his boorish behavior and tweeting without a filter. Not taking crap from the liars is the reason why most of America is behind the president. These people don't speak for us anymore, and they're very upset about that. 414-799-1620. Jack in Oak Creek. Jack, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. I really disagree with the headline. We hired this man to lead the country. We go to our churches, synagogues, mosques for moral leadership. Not that we want him to lie about things, but again, they say, well, he's a liar. Well, really, they haven't come up with any significant, gigantic lies. The economy is going much, much better. Unemployment is way, way down. Mm -hmm. Their respect to the country in the world is much higher. He's doing better trade deals. The military is being rebuilt. He is accomplishing what we want him to do for the country, what we hired him for. Now, to say you have a policy disagreement, we don't agree with the wall, we don't agree with the immigration policy, that's a policy disagreement. That's not a disgrace. That's simply we disagree with his policy. You don't call that a disgrace. Now, you don't like how he talks. You know what? I hate to say it, but all the people filtering through all the different committees, so Hillary Clinton, nothing came out of her mouth at any resemblance to what she actually thought. So you think Trump, it, it's, it's kind of interesting you could say that, Jack, because there's a, a new poll that's out. And it, it, it polls the people who are like the diehard supporters of President Trump. And actually, one of the things it finds is as much as his policy, they love his what they describe as straightforward kind of take no prisoners. They love all those characteristics that the Chicago Tribune is 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 indicting, the, the counterpunching, the kind of New York persona. Um, you, you kind of like that personality, huh? I do. And the thing that is about it is he says what he thinks. He tweets out, oh, my gosh, he tweets. Well, you know what? It is unfiltered, but that's what he's thinking. Now, we can then, on that basis, have an honest discussion and maybe an argument. I don't agree with you, but Donald Trump is unique in that if something isn't working, he changes his mind. He's not, I am wedded to this policy. I will do it. It is No, he's like, you know, this isn't working. This may work. It may not. We're going to try it. He's honest enough that you can have an honest argument and actually think, hey, if something isn't working and I've got a better idea, he may change his mind. Well, it's and interesting. Not, that you, want him to, not no. that you want him to change the bad policy or evil things, but he is willing to make adjustments. He's a businessman. If something works, it's great. He has dealt with these tin horn people going after him his whole life, having to pay off, probably to have buildings made. I'm amazed they haven't found anything on him now. No one could stand up to this kind of scrutiny and survive. Thanks for the call, Jack. I mean, one one thing that you said that, that did catch my attention is you said Donald Trump is unique. And I don't think there's any question about that. Now, other people might use a different word than unique, but there's 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 no doubt that when it comes to looking at presidents, he, he is sort of a, I forget sort of, he is a one-of-a-kind type of guy, love him or hate him. Nathan in Milwaukee. Nathan, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Yes, Jeff. sir. You know, I, I kind of fall down and, and agree with uh, with the editorial board there. You know, I'm a conservative guy, Republican, old, old Bush and McCain, and, you know, mm-hmm. et lover. But end of the day, you know, the, the tweet, I, I'm kind of the exact opposite approach to the last caller. The tweeting, the, the political fights, the name calling, it, it just raises a lot of doubts and a questions and, and creates really a big question of, you know, integrity around him. You know, really since George Washington onwards, a lot of people have always looked to the office for an element or aspect of some sort of moral, ethical leadership, to you know, at least to a degree in the country and in political discourse. 
And yeah, he's the outsider, and you know he's the maverick, and he's the anti-establishment. I got it, but he could be all that without you know calling people names on Twitter and just going all these oddball rants. Well, there, there, there's a re- there's a well, there is a a certain recklessness that that I think almost everybody love him or hate him. There's a certain recklessness that has to give people pause. And again, I I understand that there's some people who think that there's this giant master plan. And when President Trump gets up and sends out some provocative sort of tweet at two thirty in the morning or whatever, that there's this goal that he's trying to accomplish. I don't think so. I just think he gets, you know, a wild hair up a certain part of his anatomy, and then this is just <laughs> kind of his, his his reaction, you know, with, without thinking about it. And that happens to all of us. It's just we're not the leader of the free world, and we don't grab our phone and put this thing out there. Well, exactly. And, you know, I, I guess like with the last caller and more of Trump's apologist, I would, I, the question I would have is what would their feelings be if Obama had done that? Right. You know, or, Obama kind of scratched the line a couple times. And, you know, I thought that was despicable enough. If he was going, if Obama had been going off like this every other day on Twitter, you'd have been a revolt, and you know it. Um, yeah, no, thanks for calling. No, I, and I think that's that's the case. So where do I come down on this? Um, I don't, all right, first of all, I, I am old school enough to think that I, I, I still think character matters. I, I have argued this for over 20 years on the radio. I, I think I think character matters. My concern about President Trump when he was candidate Trump is a, a lot of these these characteristics that the Chicago Tribune writes about the the, the counter punching, the the bully, the the thin skinned stuff. I mean, his administration, and at the same time, I understand that you're getting this scrutiny uh, from the mainstream media. As I've said oftentimes, if, if you read a lot of the stories in the New York Times and the Washington, these reporters loathe him. They just loathe him. And and so there was no sort of honeymoon, and they're out to try to get him. And I understand how that is, is frustrating, especially if you're somebody who's used to being a political street fighter or a business street fighter, and you're one of these you know self-proclaimed New York City tough guys, and this is how you come up in the business world. I understand why you want to fight back. I think that much of the stuff that the president does is unbecoming of the president of the United States and the leader of the free world, and I think there are prices to pay for that. More importantly, as somebody who agrees with a lot of the policy initiatives of the president. What I think happens is I think he steps on his own message over and over again. And this, I think, is going to hurt Republicans in November. And it's kind of frustrating. Instead of talking about what our first caller was talking about, all the progress you're making on the economy and everybody working and all this great stuff that's going on, you know, we, we obsess over all these other things, which in the big picture are kind of trivial. But part of the reasons why we obsess over this stuff is because President Trump, you know, brings this into focus. All right, I, I, I've met Jeff Sessions, the Attorney General, on a couple occasions over my lifetime. Jeff Sessions, I think, is a solid conservative. I mean, certainly his years and years in the Senate demonstrated that. He's a law and order guy. His years in the U.S. Attorney's Office before that demonstrated that. And you've had the president who has literally been peeing on him from the beginning. 
And he continues to do that. And I, I've said this for the last year. If I were Jeff Sessions, I would have walked into the president's office and said, Mr. President, I, I just obviously our working relations deteriorated. If you've decided that, you know, you want to make me the whipping boy for all this, that's fine. I'm out of here. Here's my letter of resignation. Why Sessions continues to stay is absolutely beyond me. But again, instead of talking about positive economic gains or whatever, Today, the headlines are are President Trump going after his own attorney general uh, again and again in some of the most vicious terms possible. Do I think that his tenure has been a disappointment? Not necessarily. Do I think some of his behavior in office is disgraceful? Yeah, I, I, I do. And I think most people of goodwill would would agree with that. And that's why, again, for a lot of us, you wrestle with the the cringeworthy factor of some of the things he says and some of the things he does and some of the gratuitous fights he picks with the fact that, hey, I like this policy. I like what he's doing here. I like what he's doing here. But you just have to overlook so darn much. So I agree with some of the editorial. I disagree with other parts of it. But as long as President Trump is president, you know there's going to be a lot to talk about. 1257, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 109, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. I understand in some circles, uh, U.S. Senator John McCain is, is controversial. Not, not in my household. I, I think, uh, and John McCain is, of course, in the news, as we were just talking about. He has been battling a, a, a particularly insidious and deadly form of, of brain cancer for over a year. And underscoring just what an awful disease this is, his family is announcing today that they've made a decision to end medical treatment, which is a um, a condition that if you've ever dealt with somebody close to you who's had to battle cancer, inevitably, in, in many cases, it gets to that point where you just decide that the... The treatments aren't working anymore, and they're having an just an adverse impact, and there's just nothing more to be gained. And then, then you make that decision. And um, I, I don't know what this means for Senator McCain, other than the fact that it, it's typically a decision you make as, as one nears the end of his life. But the, you know, the family said we're going to be discontinuing medical treatment. I um, one of the things that candidly. I, I always had an issue. I've had, I had a lot of issues during the 2016 presidential campaign with some of the things that then candidate Trump said. And, and I will be honest with you, his decision to attack John McCain. And I understand that John McCain is a source, uh, has, has been over the years on a particular issue here or there, has been a, a source of, I don't know, consternation for, for Republicans. John McCain's always been somewhat of a, of a maverick. And I certainly didn't agree with him on all the things he did by, by no stretch of the imagination. But I don't know that I agree with anybody on all the things that they do. But I, I remember when, when President Trump during the course of the campaign decided to respond to punch back, go after Senator McCain by saying, well, I don't know why everybody refers to him as a war hero. A war hero, of course, John McCain served several years in a, in a Vietnamese prisoner of war camp after having his plane shot down. And President Trump says, to me, heroes are the ones that don't get shot down, or words to that effect. I thought that was disgraceful. I, I just, I, I did. And especially, I think it would have been disgraceful for anybody, but especially disgraceful for somebody like President Trump who, 
avoided, you know, used various connections and stuff to avoid having to serve in the military himself to challenge Senator McCain's service, I thought was appalling. Which isn't to say, like I say, I understand that there's all sorts of political disagreements that are out there and all, and I understand that um, Senator McCain had taken positions and and wasn't a fan of Donald Trump's and and vice versa. I I get all that. But I I thought that was a particularly appalling thing to say. And it's it to me, it, it showed that, you know, Donald Trump, the candidate, really had no filter. And it's one of the reasons why I candidly hope that Donald Trump, the president, would be able to restrain some of those those things. And unfortunately, I, I think that hasn't worked out that way. But uh, John McCain, who I consider at least to be an American hero, and that's that is acknowledging that I think he has been wrong on some issues. He has been obstinate on some issues. I consider him to be an American hero, and uh, this this news extremely, you know, unfortunate, but unfortunately at the same time relatively predictable. It, it is interesting to me. One of the questions, matter of fact, several people sent me emails about what what happens if, at this point in time, given the the dire nature of the prognosis, if Senator McCain were to now step down, or if um, he, he were to pass away, you know, what happens to that seat? And, and the simple answer is that the, the Republican governor of Arizona gets to appoint a replacement for him. That replacement, whoever that is chosen, would then serve until the next general election, not in Arizona, not the one in November, but the, the next one. And that would be to fill out Senator McCain's term. So whoever gets appointed would would take office pretty much immediately and would be there for a while. Interestingly enough, it does get complicated if the governor and the governor of Arizona, who's Republican, has said that he's he has no interest in appointing himself to that seat. If the governor of Arizona were to appoint a congressman, well, then the way the law works is you'd have to have a special election to fill that congressman seat pretty quickly. But if you appointed somebody other than a congressman, uh, there wouldn't be an elect uh, there wouldn't be an election in Arizona and for a while. But it's a little bit complicated. But the bottom line is for people wondering what happens if Senator McCain were either to step down or pass away, what happens? And the simple answer is. Uh, you, you have uh, the Republican governor of Arizona who will appoint Senator McCain's replacement, who will then serve for the foreseeable future until the next scheduled general election, which um, so that person would be voting, for example, on, on if Senator McCain were to decide that he was going to step down effective today, the, the governor makes an appointment next week. That person would then be there for the hearings on Judge Kavanaugh, for example. So that that's that's where this all plays into it. But you know, you don't want to get too caught up with the politics because, uh, again, and I understand while somewhat a controversial figure, I think John McCain is is a great American. I, I just I just do. He was, of course, the Republican standard bearer in two thousand eight, which was a, a year that, given the ascendancy of Barack Obama and the fact that. Republicans were coming off, you know, eight years of President Bush and the fact that, you know, Democrats were completely mobilized to try to, you know, do away with any remnants of the Bush administration. That that 2008 campaign, I I think, was pretty much probably doomed from the start. But I thought he ran, I think he ran a strong campaign. 
Um, I think he's been a solid conservative standard bearer, again, acknowledging some, well, I don't know, some decisions that I don't think I would have made, like McCain-Feingold campaign finance and things of the like. But John McCain, uh, the announcement today that they are no longer going to be um, providing medical treatment for his particularly insidious type of cancer, um, whatever that means moving forward, you know, tough to say, but, you know, not good news. And I think everybody's prayers should be with Senator McCain and with his family moving forward. All right, when we come back, we're going to switch gears. One of the nation's largest food chains has just made an announcement that will affect how you shop and how you check out. I'll tell you about it. We'll discuss in just a moment. It's 117, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 119, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It has been a decade in the making. Pfizer Forum, not the Pfizer Forum, but Pfizer Forum is set to open this weekend. And John McCure has a sneak peek for you as he takes you inside the brand new arena. Be sure to tune in to John's show, 320 this afternoon on Wisconsin's Afternoon News. Okay, Gru, who's producing the show today and always, when you are in the grocery store shopping, you get up to the checkout thing, you inevitably get that question, sir, would you care for paper or plastic? Your response is, Usually paper, but sometimes plastic, which is kind of depending on what the mood you are in. Yeah, you almost always do paper. I I actually, I almost always do paper as well, simply because to me, the paper bags seem sturdier. I, I, they, they seem a little bit sturdier and I reuse the paper bags. I mean, what I'll, we'll, we'll get the paper bag, you know, it comes home and then we kind of fold it up and then I, I use it to take out, well, I don't know. I use it to like leave things for people. I, I reuse the paper bags, um, and, and pass them on. So I, I actually, I, I don't know that the grocery stores like it when I choose the paper alternative because paper costs more than the plastic bags. So I'm also costing them a little bit of money. Now, why are we talking about paper and plastic bags? Because if you are one of those people who are into the plastic bags and there are a lot of you out there, the decision is going to be even more difficult moving forward. Kroger, which is the the Cincinnati-based food chain, which is one of the largest food chains in the country, Kroger is announcing that they will be banning, and this isn't a government ban. This isn't like in California where the law says you can't use it. This is a decision made by a particular business. They say that they are going to be banning all plastic checkout bags by 2025. And what they are going to be doing is they're going to be trying to transition people over the next several years from using these, the plastic bags into buying reusable bags that start at $1 each and then encouraging people to put these bags in their trunk and then bring them in when they're, they're going to shop. As of now, the plan is to continue to offer paper bags but ultimately, what they want to do is they want you to bring your own bags back in. That's what they're ultimately going to do. Whether they're going to implement charging people for the paper bags is, I guess, still an open question. Now, you might say to me, well, Jeff, that, that's interesting, but why do I care what a Cincinnati grocery chain Kroger does? Well, first of all, like I say, it's either the largest or the second largest grocery chain in the country. Secondly, it does affect us around here because Kroger owns a number of, of grocery chains that are operating in in Wisconsin. Kroger owns, uh, for example, uh, Pick and Saves. 
and the Metro Markets and the Roundies, those are all owned by Kroger. Kroger owns the Cops uh, grocery stores up in the, the Fox River Valley and a number of other ones as well. They, they own they own food chains all across the country that they operate under all sorts of, again, all sorts of different names. But what they're saying is, we're going to make the decision, no more plastic. Now, their, their argument is, we want to be good stewards of the community, and the numbers are kind of staggering. They say they order, get this, about $6 billion, that is B as in billion, plastic bags a year. Six billion. And what they point out is the vast majority of those plastic bags that they ordered are not recycled. And so what they do is they end up, you know, in trash and they ultimately end up in landfills. So Kroger's is saying, hey, look, we're trying to be responsible stewards. 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Here is my question. If obviously if if Kroger as the nation's largest or second largest grocery chain, if if they are able to make this work, are is this going to be, does this mean other people will now follow suit? Um, are plastic bags going to go the way of the dinosaur? And I guess the related thing is, do you care if that ends up happening? Now, for me, I don't have, a, I, again, I, I'm a paper bag guy mostly anyways. It's, it's like put it in paper bag, put it in paper anyhow. The, the idea of me carting around reusable bags, and I understand some of you do it, go with God. The idea of me carting around reusable bags, I, I might be too old a dog to learn that new trick. But, you know, whether it's paper, as long as I've got the option of paper, I'm not sure I really care. Will you miss plastic bags? 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Let's start with Mary in Kenosha. Mary, good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Mary. Oh, I love this. Hey, um, I, it's funny that you're bringing it up because I thought about it last night. Uh, I was watching it on the news, too. I grew up in the grocery business, and mm-hmm. although, I, you know, I feel bad about saying, actually, that I do choose plastic just because of having the dog at home, and I right. use those plastic bags, you know what I mean? But right, yeah. as, if we think about all going in the landfill, but at the same time, I remember as a kid, back in the day, when you first had to be a packer, before you got to be a checker. Right. That was when I was a kid. And so you had to know how to pack groceries in a sack of paper bags. So they might have to just train these kids re how to, you know, I mean, it's easy to just throw that stuff in those plastic things, but there's a little bit more science involved in packing it properly in sacks. Oh, I, do you think, do you think people will make that transition? I mean, lots of, I mean, if, if Kroger is ordering, you know, however many billions of bags that they are ordering, Obviously, people, you know, like that. Do you think customers are going to have trouble making that transition? I hope not. And I think that there's still, because you see a lot of people still that will bring in, like, go to Aldi. And if you don't have right. your own bag, you're going to buy a bag. So people I do are used to bringing their own in. And it's their choice as far as being better, you know, mm-hmm. of the community of the, of the earth. Right. So, no, thanks for calling. Right. Interesting concept. It, well, it is. No, thanks for calling. No, there, and there's no question about it. I mean, this, look, this isn't, this is not, like I say, this is not a state law in California which says you can't offer people plastic. This is an individual business which is making the decision we are not going to offer plastic. I guess to me, the question becomes are, are consumers going to be okay with this? 
or is in fact there going to be a backlash? You know, will people say, all right, well, if you're not going to give me the option of having this particular type of bag, which I find to be very convenient, I don't want to have to deal with the the whole idea of dealing with a plastic bag. Will that change people's shopping habits or not? 414-799-1620. We continue the conversation next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 127. This is Jeff Wagner. 129, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. If you're just tuning in, Kroger, nation's largest food chain, um, owns Pick and Save and Roundies and Metro Markets around here. They've announced that they're phasing out plastic bags. And by 2020, 2025, they say you're not going to have that option. Jamie from Muskego says, I'm a shameful plastic bag user here. My trunk is full of reusable bags, but that is conveniently where they stay while I am in store bagging my stuff in plastic. Beth and Pewaukee text to me the uh, I would definitely not be heartbroken over plastic bags. I would much rather have paper. Um, I guess the question becomes, you know, are you are you going to be willing to pay extra for that? Justin says I've always loved plastic grocery bags because of their secondary versatility for use in collecting dog waste, wrapping things when packing them for shipping, suitcases when traveling, and for garbage bags or small items and vehicles. That said, I personally noticed more and more of them discarded carelessly by others and just flying around and floating in lakes, rivers, and washing up on bound beaches. So if Kroger and other grocery chains want to eliminate them, I will accept that fact. Let's talk to Chris in Milwaukee. Chris, you're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff. How are you Hi, doing? Hi, Chris. I'm good, thank you. Are you going to miss plastic bags if they go away? You know, truthfully, i got to be honest, I don't I don't really use them. Anytime I go to, like, Metro Market or Pick and Save, I typically ask for paper bags just because by us, I use the paper bags uh, as recyclables. So I yeah. basically stick our recyclables in them. So, I mean, I'm surprised it's taking this long, you know, now um, that they haven't switched to paper bags, the only thing I'll probably be frustrated with is at least we still have the choice and we're not charged for them. Right. But I'm like you. I'm not the type of guy that's going to drive around with um, <laughs> eggs in my back. So it's like if I'm stuck paying for them, it's going to stink. But, right. you know, I'm, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I, I'm just I, not. I them. Right. I, I respect yeah. people who are, but I, I'm just... I'm not that organized, number one. And number two, you, you go inevitably, you go and you buy some meat or something. I just, I'm just, and I'm not going to do that. But I guess yeah. that just means I'm going to have to reach into my pockets. No, thanks for the call. Okay. I just, I just alert you that this is a trend that is happening. I, I'm looking in my crystal ball. My prediction is either through government legislation or just individual business decision. My guess is in the next decade, these things that we talk about, like plastic bags, I think they are going to go the way of the the, the phone booth um, and the rotary dial telephone and the VCR. I just think that's inevitable, whether we like it or not. 137, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. The 2019 Brewer schedule is already out, and they open next year's season at home against the Cardinals. Text Brewers to 414-799-1620 to see the schedule. All right, Gru, you are relatively new to Milwaukee. There is actually there is what I consider to be an interesting story in the journal Sentinel. I don't know if it's in the paper, but it's online. Okay. There's a number of very famous, there's a number of custard stands around the area. And one of the things that you find around here is people are very, very protective of their custard. I mean, for example, if you're a cop's custard guy or gal, you know, you, you will defend for to your life the fact that your custard is, is the best. 
Well, there. <laughs> this is actually it's kind of one of these interesting stories. All right, now one of one of the the custard stands that's been around for forever, decades, decades, and decades, um, that is always in competition with cops is a, a stand on seventy five fifteen West Blue Mound Road. It's been there since nineteen thirty eight. And the the name of the custard stand, it's spelled G-I-L-L-E-S. Have you been to that custard stand? You have not. Have you heard of that custard stand? You have not. You need to get out more. All right. Well, many people have. Well, here's the point. How would you, Grew, guess you pronounce the name G-I-L-L-E-S? You would say Gillis. You would be wrong. Most people call it Gillies with a long E. That, that's, that's how you're, it, it's, it's, we're going to Gillies custard. All right. That's, that would be wrong as well. And that, that's a big story in the journal, but it is. It, this is one of these kind of interesting Milwaukee trivia things. They, they, they send a reporter out to ask, how do you pronounce the name of the custard stand? And I knew this. I, and I forget, I forget why, why I knew this, but I, I think it's because there was a, I'm, I'm not going to name drop here, but there, a, a very prominent member of the community who I know regularly would stop by that custard stand. And we got to talking about it because we were having the discussion as to where you have the best custard. And I mispronounced the name a number of years ago and he corrected me. And so I, I've always, I, it was like, I said, it was a very prominent citizen who corrected my pronunciation. So it always kind of stuck with me, but, but they pronounce the, the name of the custard, they pronounce it Gillis's. G-I-L-L-U-S-E-S. That, that would be how, I understand it's G-I-L-L-E-S, which is how it's spelled, but it's pronounced as if it were Gillis's. G-I-L-L-U-S-E-S. That's, that's according to the Journal Sentinel. So now, I don't know where you get that, but of course, it's like the, the, the guy that the Brewers traded for, the second baseman from Baltimore, who is, has gotta be better. He's gotta be a better player than, than he showed in his time with Milwaukee because he's been absolutely dreadful. But there's always, you know, another game. His, his name, it's spelled S-C-H-O-O-P. And his name is pronounced Scope. Now, how you get Scope from S-C-H-O-O-P is beyond me. But, but that's the case. But if you are going out for custard or for a burger or something, the 7500 block of West Blue Mound Road today, you're not going to Gillies. You're not going to Gillis. You are going to Gillis's custard stand. See, this is news that you can, in fact, use. Journal Center. And actually, it's kind of an interesting piece on, on the history of this. And it's, it's named after the, the founder, um, who, you know, started in 1938 and then, you know, um, ended up, you know, selling it in the seventies and stuff. But that's, that's it. Now, I do not want to go down the discussion of where the best custard is because all we will do is further irritate people. And I know I've been doing a lot of that today with my various positions on issues. But, but you know, it's it's Gillis. Gillis is the way you pronounce it, according to the Journal Sentinel story. See, something to talk about at dinner tonight. 141, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. When we come back, I, I want to talk about this 14-year-old who finds himself at least with the police recommending felony charges against him. I'll explain why in just a moment. Stick around. 145, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Okay, so the overriding sentiment is all the feedback I'm getting is we don't care 
if it really is pronounced Gillis's, we're still calling it Gillies. <laughs> well, it, it, we, we, that's what we're calling it. Uh, well, it, it just, just it, it, it's it's Gillis's, according to the folks. And then somebody is trying. Okay, the, the second baseman the Brewers trade for, who is playing just absolutely terrible. He's you know he, he's got to play better because he can't play worse. Um, last name S C H O O P. And one of our intrepid texters tried to explain to me how you get scope out of S-C-H-O-O-P, and I'm sorry, I, I just, I, I don't. And he said, well, it's kind of like school. Well, but it's S-C-H-O-O-P. I mean, if it was scoop, I would get it. That would be like school. I, I he, Look, he, he, can, he can call himself whatever he wants. He gets to decide how his name is pronounced, but... I still don't understand how you get S-C-H-O, how you get, you get scope out of S-C-H-O-O-P. And I'm not quite sure I understand how you get Gillis's out of G-I-L-L-E-S, but it doesn't matter. It's your name. All right, let us switch gears. Whenever we have a situation where you have a threat against a school or a threat against people in a school, and then the school has to make decisions, you know, they, they bring in added security. Sometimes they close down the school. They, they take all these things. We always have this conversation about, all right, what's going to happen when they catch the person that has done it? And I will tell you, um, I, I've been doing this long enough to know that the reaction I'm going to get, and it's kind of what my reaction is too, is when they catch the person that's made the, the bomb threats or made the death threats or, or done whatever it was that's caused the reaction that's had. My, my point is you have to treat this seriously. And all too often what ends up happening is everybody says we're going to treat it seriously. But then when it inevitably turns out to be the, the 15 or 16-year-old who's disgruntled and who's angry and who says, yes, I, they, they catch him and, yeah, we did this, but we really didn't intend to do anything, then it's like, well, okay, let's just slap him on the wrist and let's give him a warning and let's tell him not to do it again, which to me, all that does is it empowers the next 14 or 15 or 16-year-old kid to do the same thing which is one of the reasons that I've always argued that you have to not only say that you're going to treat it seriously, but that you are, in fact, going to treat it seriously. So here's here's the story. 14-year-old, this is the headline, police say a 14-year-old made threats to shoot Brookfield East High School students. Now, this is the way the Journal Sentinel reports it. A 14-year-old student will be referred to the Waukesha County District Attorney's Office on a felony charge of making terrorist threats against after allegedly threatening to shoot students at Brookfield East High School. Brookfield police announced their pursuit of criminal charges the other day um, after the suspect was arrested. East students were, were lauded on August 21st, that's Tuesday, for notifying school authorities after seeing the threats posted on multiple social media sites, according to police. The student has no ties to Brookfield East. The student's gender was never made clear in police or school statements. This is the second known incident locally of a teenager facing felony charges of making terrorist threats. And they, they go on to talk about how in April there was a 17-year-old who the Waukesha District Attorney's Office charged with, again, the same crime, making terrorist threats after he made verbal threats to shoot classmate to classmates saying he was going to shoot up the McGuanago School District, McGuanago High School, 
Um, those charges are apparently pending. The kid is out of free on, on bond. Brookfield East, the principal says, um, once notified, we immediately brought in the city of Brookfield Police Department. They completed their investigation into the social media posts and they took the adolescent into custody. We're grateful to the students who brought the post to the attention of our school administrative team. As we have done in the past, we'll continue to ask students to, if they see something, to say something. Um, so the police, they caught the kid that did this, 14 years old, and they are saying to the Waukesha District Attorney's Office, here's somebody who threatened to shoot students at Brookfield East. He, by the way, isn't a student at Brookfield East. But we think he should be prosecuted, and we think it should be a felony. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, obviously, prosecuting a 14-year-old with a felony means, number one, they get waived into adult court. Number two, their name becomes public, so everybody knows what it was that they are at least accused of doing. Number three, if convicted of a felony, that is going to be something that follows them through for essentially the rest of their life. So let's tee this up. Is that now, and the reality also is, for somebody who's 14 years old, you're not going to put him or her in prison for the next 30 years. That That's just not going to happen. But a felony conviction will, I think, make it difficult for the kid to get to college, for sure limit his employment opportunities moving forward. Is this too harsh a penalty for somebody who at the age of 14 takes to social media and threatens to kill a bunch of people? 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I will share with you where I come down on this, and we'll discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. 414-799-1620 is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If you want to join us, 151 Jeff Wagner, WTMJ, is 14 too young to be charged with essentially making terrorist threats by taking to the Internet and threatening to kill a bunch of high school students. We'll discuss. Stick around. 154 Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Let's start with uh, Jamie in Milwaukee. Jamie, you're in WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, how are you? I am well, thank you. Okay, kid is 14. He apparently has been caught making death threats on the Internet. They're recommending a felony charge against him. Is that too much? That is way too much. I'm sorry, I have a 13-year-old. I also have a son that's about to be 12. And I understand that kids, and I've also taken child psychology classes, um, I could see if he actually did it. But there are kids that are Okay, let me just stop you there for a second. If if he actually did go into the school and start shooting, I think we would all we would all agree that yeah, that, yeah that's, that's clearly a felony, felony okay. charge for sure. Got it. Okay. But for putting something on Facebook, definitely not, because I see a lot of things on Facebook worse than that, and kids don't get anything. I, I've seen a lot of threats to a lot of places to a lot of people, and they don't do anything. So he should be. I think he needs some counseling. I think that they need to find out what the root of his problem is and why he has a problem with a different school he doesn't even go to. Mm-hmm. Like, that's my main concern here. Is he being bullied by these other kids? Is there a reason why they don't like him and he feels that he needs to go that far? Well, I mean, is it possible it's just simply he's an antisocial kid who likes to create problems? Exactly. It could be. My my son's very antisocial as well, but he's not violent. He's just withdrawn. And that's, I couldn't see a kid... 
but your but your son like that. your son's not you're pretty confident your son's not going to be going on Facebook threatening oh, to no. kill other students. Yeah. Oh no, because he knows better than to do that, and I wouldn't allow that. But I I monitor Facebook very very carefully, and I tell him what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. He knows better, yeah. but. This might be a lack of parenting, too, here. You don't know what the issue is. I don't know what the issue is. Okay, thanks for call. All right, Jamie Jamie says, no, 14 is, is too young since he didn't act out on the threats. I guess my, my concern is if, if we just then blow that off, if we say, okay, this is a cry for help or whatever, are we just simply saying that, all right, we're going to now look the other way when we have kids that decide that they're, they're going to do this? I mean, by the time you're 14, do you know that you don't go on the Internet and threaten to kill other people? Let's talk to Marion in Whitefish Bay. Marion, hello. Hello. What? Thank you for having me. Yes, ma'am. Uh, I, to- I totally disagree with that lady, and she sort of contradicted herself. She started out saying, uh, you know, how her 12 and 13 and 14-year-olds uh, they're just a little whatever. But then in the end, she said, oh, they know better. They wouldn't do that. Of course you know better. Mm-hmm. And if you don't start cranking down on the car thieves and the burglars and the death threats, mm-hmm. all the other kids will think, well, it doesn't matter. We can get away with it. They're not doing anything to them. I totally, totally disagree. And I think felony charges are very appropriate. It's time... These kids sober up. Well, thanks. See, I mean, see, part of the problem is if, if you if you just if you treat this a, as a juvenile matter, you treat it as disorderly conduct, and you send it out to juvenile court. Nobody's going to ever know about the disposition. Nobody's going to know who the kid is. Um, future employers aren't going to know who the kid is. It's going to be something that's going to be kept pretty much, you know, completely silent. And I guess I wonder. See, there's all sorts of reasons why you prosecute people, and, and there's to punish them, there's to give them an opportunity for rehabilitation, and there's also this idea of deterrence. And and this is, I guess, this is one of the areas where I, I really, I, I think we're dropping the ball collectively. You have to deter this type of stuff. It is so easy nowadays for people to, uh, again, get on the computer. And then you'll get on these different social media sites and, and type whatever they want, which causes huge disruptions. I'm sure the kids who go to Brookfield East who saw this type of thing, it's a freaky sort of thing. Oh, there's this, there's this unknown person out there that says they're going to kill us. Well, I mean, that's, that's a big deal and you need to discourage it. Now, do I say that you take the kid and you put him in prison for 30 years, assuming it's a him? No, and my, my answer is no to that. But you need more than, I think, just a slap on the wrist and saying, okay, we're going to kick you over to juvenile court and we're going to tell you not to do it again. It's 159. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 209, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So, Gru, who's producing the show today and always. You sorry the Brewers didn't get Matt Harvey? You're not. Again, I'm not sure he's any better than what they have, I I guess. And um, I am surprised that the Reds didn't kind of let him go because he's going to be a free agent. The Reds are going nowhere. He still owed a bunch of money. This is Mark Atanasio saying, well, if you think we can, it'll help out, you know, we'll pick up the salary for a month. Uh, Today was kind of a key day because any, if if you want to be, if you you have to be roster by September 1st, if you want to be available for the playoffs. So um, Brewers, the Brewers tried. I give them credit. I think they're trying to do whatever they can to benefit themselves. And they're, they're certainly in the playoff hunt. It's, 
unless Chicago stumbles and they start playing better baseball, and I, I say that because I was there at that awful game um, on Tuesday night between the Cincinnati Reds and the Brewers, where they lost nine to seven after taking a four to nothing lead. Those two innings, the third and fourth inning, as you can tell, I, the, these wounds are still open. The third and fourth inning, they looked like the fourth inning particularly. They looked like a bad high school team. And then I'm a Craig Council fan. I like Craig Council, but he he overmanaged in the ninth inning. You've got this pitcher who's come in unhittable for two batters, and then, well, there's a left-hander coming up here. I'm going to go get a left-hander in the bullpen. You stop all the momentum, and Scooter Jeanette hits a home run on the first pitch. He just, Council overmanaged, but that's okay. Brewers are still in the thick of things. And once again, I remember back to opening day. And if if we could have had the conversation saying, hey, you know, it, it's the end of August. You're essentially, you're, you're tied. You're, you're in one of the wild card positions. You're a half game behind St. Louis for the top wild card position. And you're three and a half games out of first place. Would you take it? And I think everybody would have said yes. So it's still still a great season, which is why maybe we care even more about this type of stuff. I've told this story before. When, when I when I was a federal prosecutor chasing drug dealers, you, you'd catch the, these drug dealers. And one of the things that always amazed me is nobody wanted to fess up to what they did. It was always, you know, you, you'd catch these people with ma- piles and piles of cocaine, and you trace hundreds of thousands of dollars back to their illegal activities. And they'd have all this stuff, and, and then they'd get convicted, and they would whine about it. And I always used to say, you know, if I just... I'd be willing to even, I was kind of saying this tongue in cheek, but I used to always say, you know, I'd, I'd even be willing to make a less severe prison recommendation if just for once somebody would have looked at me and said, you know what, you got me. I, I, I had a great two or three years. I had all this money. I had all this excitement. I had all these jewelry. I had all these cars. I had all these women. And, and yeah, and it, I knew it was going to cost me the next 20 years of my life, but it was worth it. If I just had one person that would say that, but you never did. It was always these whines and the, the whining and the excuses. If you talk to rank and file police officers, including people that are out there like chasing down drunk drivers and stuff, they get a variation of the same thing. They pull people over, and almost nobody says, even if they're drunk as you know what, almost nobody says, yeah, you're right, you caught me, I've been drinking in the bar for six hours. You know, it's always, well, I, I had one or two beers. You know, it's, it's <laughs> wouldn't you just once like to say something, yeah, you, you got me, I've been sitting over at Harry's, pounding them back for the last five or six hours, I'm blind drunk. But but it's never that. It's always, well, I've had one or two beers. I was thinking about that with this story. <laughs> and this is, of course, this is just, it's it's the Milwaukee County Board and the Clown Car Act. It is the county board. Milwaukee County Board Vice Chairman Marcella, Marcella Nicholson pleaded no contest Wednesday to a citation she was given after driving into a freeway barrier last month. Um, Nicholson, 30, was fined 784 bucks in order to complete an alcohol assessment. She will lose her driving privileges for six months and then has to use an ignition interlock for a year after getting her license back. All right. Um, she cuts this plea deal. According to the Milwaukee County Sheriff's Office, Nicholson crashed her 2017 black Chevrolet utility vehicle into a median wall on I-43 southbound at West National Avenue on July 23rd. Deputies said she showed signs of impairment and conducted field sobriety tests, which she flunked. All right, a breath test showed a blood alcohol content of .18, more than twice the legal limit. And then the, the recordings, the 911 calls after she smashes in the barrier, they're, they're 
it's sad, but it's kind of funny because she's clearly blotto, you know, and she's calling and it's like, well, I think I hit something or, or whatever. All right. So th- that's OK. She, she's out there driving drunk and, you know, she, she's double the legal limit. So we're not talking about somebody that went to the fish fry and had that half a beer too much. She's double the legal limit. So, of course, what do police do when she's flunking the field sobriety test? People say, well, have, have you been drinking? And her response is, I had one. <laughs> I had one alcoholic drink. Now, of course, maybe it was a really big alcoholic drink. Yeah, it was one of those pails of things. But again, it's this thing that I'm sure from the police perspective, it's always I either had two beers or I had one drink. Now, how that one drink got me to, you know, a point one eight. Well, you know, tough to say. But it's just, I think a lot of times these officers would just like to say, just tell me the truth. Yeah, I was at this thing afterwards, or I was at a party or whatever. I've been drinking all day. You got me. I smashed my car into the freeway barrier. Glad I didn't kill myself. Glad I didn't kill anybody. But yeah, I've been drinking all day. But instead, it's, I had, I just had one drink, officer. Now, admittedly, maybe it was a really, like I say, a really, really big one. Just once, you'd like to see people be honest about that. All right. It is the end of an era. It is happening shortly. We will discuss when we come back. And then in about 20 minutes, Pop Culture Corner. It's going to be a fun one this weekend, this week. 215, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 218, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Desmond Howard, Travis the Roadrunner Williams, and some of today's Packers are among the candidates for the best kick returner in Packers history. That is our newest Green Bay 100 all-time team vote. Text the number 100 to 414-799-1620 to make your pick. Travis the Roadrunner Williams. All right. It, 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 true story. I was not at the Ice Bowl, but the first Packers game I ever attended, Old County Stadium, was the playoff game in 1967 between the Packers and then the Los Angeles Rams. It was the game before the Ice Bowl, and the Ice Bowl was cold. But let me tell you, that was really cold as well. And I can remember being in the end zone. It was like the, the, it was the corner of one of the end zones and it was cold. The only place where they had heat was like the men's room. So Lord forbid you had to, actually had to go and, and use the men's room, men's room for its intended purpose because everybody was huddled there trying to get warm. But, um, the Packers beat the Los Angeles Rams and Travis, the Roadrunner Williams, had a big game and a kick return for a touchdown. And I, that was the first Packers game I ever went to when I was a, a young, young kid. So I always remember that. I, people say, everybody says they were at the Ice Bowl. Well, okay, I wasn't at the Ice Bowl, but I was at that game before that. And that started a lifetime love affair with the Green Bay Packers. Okay. As long as we are taking a walk down memory lane, when I moved here as a young child with my parents, the there were a couple big department store chains. Um, there was you had Sears, you know, and Sears was big back then, and you had Gimbel's, which was big back then. But you also had Boston Store, which was huge. And as somebody who grew up in Glendale, um, you, the place you would go to shop would you, you'd go you'd go to Bayshore. And when I first moved here, Bayshore was an L-shaped strip mall. Now it's Bayshore Town Center. Before that, it was Bayshore Mall. But when I first moved here, it was an L-shaped um, strip mall. And the, the 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 linchpin, you know, in the corner of the L was the Boston store. And and that's been one of the linchpins since, uh, again, for, for many of us, my guess is for most of us, 
during our entire lifetimes, especially if you've lived in Milwaukee for your entire lifetime or a good portion of it, that Boston store has been, you know, one of those linchpins. You know, it was a key element of Northridge, which is now gone, key element of Southridge, key element of Brookfield Square, key element of, of Mayfair. And, you know, Boston store, it was announced several months ago that the, the chain uh, Bonton, which is the parent company that owns Boston Store, was going under. They, they, they'd gone into bankruptcy, couldn't come up with a plan where they could figure out how to make it work. And so there, there's been an ongoing liquidation sale. We've talked about it once or twice. But now it's coming to an end because the reality is probably by the middle of, of next week, you're, you're down to the last probably four or five days. My guess is by a week from today, all those Boston stores throughout the area, and again, I'm just talking about the Milwaukee area, West Bend, I mean, that Boston store has been there forever. All these Boston stores, which have been, I don't know, part of the fabric of, of again, these our various communities around here, they're pretty much all, they're going to be gone by the end of next week if they're not gone already. It, it, in some respects, it's inevitable. Uh, the the the, the chain department stores have been struggling. Again, look what's happening to Sears and things like that. And there's a wide variety of reasons for that, um, starting with the Internet and then moving on. But but Boston Store is, is going away. I, I didn't want to let this happen without just devoting one final segment to the departure of Boston Stores. Here's my question. Are you going to miss them? 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. I mean, I, I have to tell you, in all honesty, my when Boston store, the one at Bayshore, and that's just because, like I say, I grew up in Glendale. That was, I mean, I that was the place that you would go when I was a kid growing up. And I can remember the three floors, and you had the clothing on the one floor, and you had the appliances and the TVs and things like that down on the third floor. It, it was kind of that one-stop shop where you went to in this area. And I'm not saying it was exclusive. There were other ones. But, I mean, I think for the longest time, you know, we've had the J.C. Penney's and all those type of things and the Macy's. But for the longest time, Boston Store, I think, was viewed as the gold standard of shopping throughout the metropolitan area and the suburbs. And it's going to be gone. Are you going to miss it? 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We'll discuss in just a moment. Let's take a very brief walk down memory lane. Boston Store, it's going to be history in less than a week. 223, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 226, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Dan in Caledonia. Dan, good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you doing? I am well. Okay, within the next week, that's going to be history. Boston store says sayonara. You going to miss it? Uh, yeah, kind of. I remember years ago when I was, I'm 60 now, and when I was, oh, when I used to deliver papers, we used to take our money that we made, go down there on a Saturday, <laughs> and we'd get the free samples at the deli at Gimbal's, and then we'd go to Boston store, mm-hmm. get their free samples, and then we used to go up to, Oh, what store was that where they had the toys and they had that train or that monorail? Is that, that oh, you're talking, about, you're talking about downtown. Um, yeah, okay. downtown, the Boston store, yeah. Okay, well, thanks. I got it. I got it. Now, see, it's interesting. We kind of had the same background because when I was a kid, um, when I guess this is as a young teenager before I had a driver's license, we would frequently, we would catch the 
Oakland-Delaware bus at Bayshore on Saturdays, and we'd go downtown to downtown Milwaukee. Yes, that was the time when our parents actually let us as teenagers go by ourselves on a bus to downtown Milwaukee. Now, I don't know if that happens very much anymore. And we'd get off on Water Street in Wisconsin, and we kind of work our way up Wisconsin Avenue, and there was Gimbel's, and there was Boston Store, and there was Schwartz Bookstore, and, and all those different things. And it was just it was just a lot of fun. Um, let's see. Kim in Milwaukee says, I will miss Boston Store so much. I don't know where I will Christmas shop. So sad. I'm a multi-generational um, I'm a multi-generational shopper. Uh, Patrick from Fond du Lac Text, the only thing I'm going to miss is the ability to get the item I wanted the same day and the ability to just browse around. Other than that, no, not missing it. Well, I will tell you, I don't, I mean, I honestly don't remember, and this is kind of nostalgia kicking in, I don't remember the last time I purchased something at a, a Boston store. I I, I don't. Um, I, I remember my late wife would buy stuff from the cosmetic counter from time to time. And there was an occasion, I think it was last Christmas, that my current wife, you know, went, we, we went in there because she was looking for something quick to pick up to wear to a, a Christmas party we were going to or something like that. But as a general rule, you know, I, I wasn't in these places. And of course, that's, that's the problem that these businesses have. That's why this closing is, it's kind of sad. But it is, in fact, inevitable as as the market changes. I always think this is interesting, though, is because the, the truth of the matter is there, and it doesn't matter whether we're talking about restaurants or retail stores or, in some cases, events, there are things which we think of as being institutions. And we think of as being, okay, this this is always going to be there because it's it's always been there. And we, we don't realize, I think, how fragile, whether it's a shopping center like Southridge or like Northridge, or whether it's a, a chain of stores, or like I say, whether it's your favorite restaurant or whatever, we don't realize how fragile some of this stuff is. And then we, you know, we end up getting surprised when it ends up closing. Now, in the case of the, the Boston stores, this was a long time coming, and I think it was apparent uh, to, to anybody who was watching this business and watching what was going on with the parent company, Bonton, it was apparent, you know, going back six or seven years that this wasn't going to work, which does, of course, raise the question of why Tom Barrett and the Milwaukee Common Council decided to you know, put money into that downtown Boston store and give them tax breaks and things like that when it was very clear that th- this was nowhere. But but again, you, you want to be in denial. You want to hope that you have these institutions. And I, I know that there's a lot of memories that people have of Boston stores, either shopping there or working there over the years. And um, they're going to be gone very, very soon. And there's no question that that's a part of Milwaukee history that's going to be leaving with them. And that's too darn bad. 235, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. All right, if, for those of you who are bummed out as Brewers fans that – they weren't able to swing a deal and bring this Matt Harvey over. I, I, I do have some good news for you. Matt Harvey is now pitching this afternoon. The Reds are playing uh, against the Cubs, and uh, he's got a shutout going. The Reds are leading the Cubs one to nothing in the bottom of the fifth inning. So that, that's at least all right. If he's not going to be pitching well for the Brewers, at least you know beat the team the Brewers are chasing or one of the teams they're chasing to get into the playoffs. So now again, it's only the bottom of the fifth inning. It's one to nothing Cincinnati ahead, but Matt Harvey um, pitching for that in that situation. Hey, Brew crew producing the show today. You're a baseball fan. Do you watch the little league world series? Do you focus? Do you ever do that? You say here and there. I, I do. I'm a little bit uncomfortable about it because 
it, it's these are kids, and and they, they treat the kids like they're adults. So you get some kid that strikes out, and he he's sitting there crying in the dugout, and they they put the cameras on him and all, and it's just it's kind of uncomfortable to me. And I understand it's probably great for the kids, and some of them become stars, and they get focused on, and they're a big deal in their school when they go back. And at the same time, part of it strikes me as being exploitive, and I don't. I, I don't exactly know where I come down on this, and and some of the parents just go absolutely crazy and stuff. I I understand we've we've really gotten a lot of attention on that. I'm just I'm always a little bit uncomfortable with that. But the Little League World Series is going on right now. This is the segment of the program where we put aside some of the heavy lifting. We stop talking about I don't know trade policy, and we stop talking about the latest stuff coming out of Washington. And we try to have a little bit of fun as we go gently into the good weekend. Um, I call the segment Pop Culture Corner. We talk about a number of things. Generally speaking, there's something during the week that's kind of triggered my interest, and that becomes the focal point, and it's tickled my fancy, and I hope it will, will tickle yours. Uh, this week, our, our Pop Culture Corner comes from the world of, of television. The Big Bang Theory, which has been on the air for 11 seasons and remains the, the top comedy on on television after 11 seasons which is uh, an incredible accomplishment i i never got into the big bang theory i i've seen it so i'm kind of familiar with it but it's just i for whatever reason it's not a show that tripped my trigger particularly so i i haven't watched it that much but i'm familiar with with the show it has been incredibly successful they announced this week that this was going to be it they're going to do one more season um, and then they're going to end the show after the, the 12th season. And some of the cast members were ready for it to end. Other people weren't. You read these comments about critics and stuff that say, oh, you know, creatively the show was over a couple of years ago. Other people say, no, it, it's too bad. This is ending. One of my complaints, and I've expressed this before when we talk about TV shows, is I, I do think there's lots of shows that go on too long. I think part of it is, I, I mean, I, I get the idea that you get a successful show and as long as people are watching it, the idea is to make money, and the idea is people are watching it, so that means you can sell ads, so you do it. I think lots of times there are shows where creatively there's only so many stories you can tell, and once you've told the story, you're either repeating yourself or you're, you're – that, that's why I love some of the stuff on, on cable nowadays where you have story arcs, where they go into the show saying – we Breaking Bad, not a comedy, but a classic example of that. The show Breaking Bad, they said, okay, this is the story that we want to tell. And if we get the opportunity, we think it's going to be six seasons. You know, and, and we're going to, this is the arc and this is where we're going to start and this is where we want to end up. And, you know, this is the route we're taking and it takes six seasons. The show Justified was like that as well. I mean, they kind of, they told the story that they were there to tell. And after, Five or six years, they decided they, they were ready to move on. So the Big Bang theory, theory, which is incredibly popular, is going to end after season 12. And it's a beloved show. My question is this, for Pop Culture Corner, let's have a little bit of fun. Because we all watch TV shows. Most of us like TV. I ran into a person today who does not own a TV. Does not own a TV. And I said, but well, you don't want to come over to my house because I'm embarrassed to admit how many TVs I have in my house. But they were telling me they don't, they don't have a TV. They listen to radio, get their stuff on the, you know, and anything they want. Sometimes they'll access TV shows over the Internet, so they've got access to this. But they don't own a TV. I'm saying, who doesn't own a TV? Well, I met that person a couple of weeks ago. 
And actually, that person has a really big-time job as well. I said, how can you not have a TV? But they don't. So they miss a lot of these TV shows that the rest of us were talking about in our conversation. But in honor of or in recognition of the Big Bang Theory winding down, I thought we'd talk TV and I thought we'd talk sitcoms. Our number, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. What is the best television situation comedy ever? And it could be an old one. It could be a current one. It could be one that's still in syndication. It could be one that you haven't seen in years. But TV sitcoms, it could be one that's kind of serious. It could be one that was just silly. Doesn't matter. The TV sitcom that you think is the best of all time. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We're back to have some fun in just a minute. If you're on the line, please hold on. And as I always say, our phone lines tend to jam up very quickly. So call quickly. We want to get to as many calls as possible. And don't overthink this. Sometimes people say, well, if I call in and I say this, will people think I'm dumb? Yeah, it's just go with your first instinct. That makes the best show. 414-799-1620-241. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 244, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. I'm being swamped with texts from different people. Uh, two people mentioning Friends. I've watched every episode countless times, and I now enjoy introducing every hilarious moment to my daughter via Netflix and syndications. That's from Jamie and Mosquito. I, I got to tell you this. My wife and all her friends, lo- male and female, love Friends. We will go out. They will talk about the shows. I don't get it. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not being a Friends hater. I just... I, I don't I don't get it. I admit that I admit that I, I watch it and I think, oh, that's kind of clever or whatever, certain scenes. But I'm I don't get it. I don't share the friend's passion. But a lot of people obviously do. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. Let's start with Dennis in Hartford. Dennis, good afternoon. Hi, how you doing, Jeff? Real well, thank you. Okay, best sitcom ever. Thanks, so. Oh. I, I have probably a dozen texts. Everybody saying the same thing. You know, it's the thing. The thing about Seinfeld to me, Dennis, and I was completely wrong about, I did not think it was going to age well. For some reason, I thought, you know, there's some TV shows that are timeless and there's others that are kind of a a product of, of the time they were in. I was completely wrong. Those Seinfeld episodes, they are as funny today as they were when they first aired. Right. I watched them when they first aired, and I also uh, taped the series now. So I always have a bank of, you know, 30, (laughs) 35, and, you know. I watch them, and even though I've seen them, maybe maybe some of them 10, 12 times, doesn't make any difference. You know, they, they are just so funny, and uh, right. I don't know. I just love them. Oh, no, no. Th- no th- and, and it is thanks for, and it, it is one of these sort of, they're silly, but they're so incredibly creative, and, and so, I mean, yeah, I, I, I'm with you. And again, like I say, I thought Seinfeld was going to be one of these things that was it was going to last. People would say it's great, but then fifteen or twenty years later, people go, "Oh, this is kind of weird." No, it, it's turned out to be timeless. Timeless. Um, here's one from Bill Jeff. I love The Office. If you ever worked in an office setting, you could relate to most of the characters. It went off the air on a high note. I still watch the reruns. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. Jim, who's calling us from Illinois. Hi, Jim. Hello. I just It's so ironic. I just got off the plane from California. I actually went to see Big Bang Theory in person for the taping. And the writers are still incredible. I'm not a cult follower of Big Bang Theory. I agree with Seinfeld and uh, uh, right. other shows, too. But the, the crew, cast and crew for this just make it 
a really big thing. But one thing I did notice, and uh, they didn't mention this when I was at the show, but uh, that this was the last season, but they were so engaged with the audience. Mm-hmm. And the only guy, uh, there was one person there that didn't seem so much, actually the two, was Parsons and Galecki. They were a little more uh, re- reserved. Okay. Um, but they're trying to keep it alive also by bringing, like, Kathy Bates in and Teller. Uh, they were there as special guests on the show that I was watching. But it's still incredibly, so it's got to be one of my uh, favorites. Interesting, Jim. For a lot of people who've never been to a, a taping of a show, how, okay, it, on air, it's 30 minutes, including commercials. How long were you there for the taping of the show? Started at 6.30, ended at 9.30, quarter to 10. <laughs> right, right. Because they redo certain... Episode. Right, and they because they redo certain scenes or they rewrite lines. Right, if they if they've got lines that are there that they don't think are working, they come in and they drop stuff. They edit as they're going on. Right, exactly. Uh, they'll redo it three or four times if they uh, don't like it. Like climbing, climbing of the staircase, uh, they have to go up four stories, and it's all on the same set. They're only going up the same story all the time, but they they change the the door numbers and they change the. The uh, tape on the elevator and things like that, which takes that little bit of time. And there's times when they just make a blooper and they forget their line. So they have to do it over and over again. But when they show it on the the screen while you're watching it, they'll show it to you on how it looks. And it's incredible. It's like watching it for the first time. It's really interesting how it comes out. Yeah, Jim. Thanks for calling. I, I, you know, that's I, I've I've been to a couple tapings of some TV shows and things like that, like the sitcoms and stuff. And I always, I, I, if, if you're if you're ever at a spot where you can watch one of those, I'd encourage you to do it. It's kind of interesting to see how it works. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. Let's talk to Melissa in Menominee. Melissa, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi. Well, I have to agree with the office, but this one, um, I remember when it ended, and I think it's more historical, and yet comedy um mash right right were you are you old enough do you remember when mash was first on did you watch it in person okay i remember like the last two seasons and the finale but um just finding it again on tv and then our family binge watches it because it's very poignant but it's Right. Humor, but also. No, I, I think so. I mean, I, I, I'm a particular fan of the first few years of MASH. I, that MASH might be one of these shows, too, where, I mean, keep in mind, the Korean War went on for a couple of years. The, the show went on for 11 or 12. That might be one where I think kind of creatively they ran out of a little juice. But especially the first few years, um, I'd say like second through fourth or fifth, they really hit their stride. And, of course, what ends up happening is you get cast members that end up leaving the show. And it just kind of, you know, their contracts are up. They go on to do other things. And it kind of changes the character. But MASH, great show. Let's talk to Jerry in Milwaukee. Jerry, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Good afternoon. Hi, Jerry. Uh, I think one of the funniest, I first started watching it as a child. I mean, we watched it as a family. And then years later, I watched it as an adult. You get a little bit of a different idea, but I thought All in the Family was very, very funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the funniest. Um, and just a, a, a note about Seinfeld, I think it's right up there, maybe, probably is the best of all time. But one thing about Seinfeld, uh, I think, is um, everybody got really, you know, nuts so about Kramer. You know, everybody liked, seemed to like him the most, but if you really watch it, I think the best acting is done by both uh, Jason Alexander yeah. and. Uh, and uh, 
also Julia Dreyfus. And right. I think actually Jerry Seinfeld is actually a fairly good actor too. Yeah, no, I mean, the, 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 thanks to God. I mean, the, the Kramer character, the Michael Richards character, which is kind of so over the top. But no, I, I think it, it's incredibly well acted. To go back to your point about All in the Family, the thing about All in the Family, and I'm not sure how much that holds up in reruns, but but people need to, and, and now that type of humor, that sort of edgy, political, current event humor, that that's on a lot. But keep in, when that show came out in the 70s, that's not what TV was about. TV was, TV was about Green Acres and Petticoat Junction and those type of things. It really was incredibly groundbreaking at, at the time. And there's not a lot of the topical uh, shows now if there wasn't an all in the family. A number of people are saying, um, um, uh, all, uh, everyone loves Raymond, which was a, a very, very good show as well. 414-799-1620. Let's talk to, let's see, uh, da, 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 Khalees in Manitowoc. You're on WTMJ. Hi, how's it going? Very well, thank you. Okay, best TV show of all time. Well, I time. have so many, but I really have to go with Golden Girls. I watched it when I was in my 20s. I'm in my 50s now. And if I can't find anything on TV, I will watch that show. And it doesn't matter how many times you've seen the particular episode, you're still amused. Heck no. I've seen them all <laughs> right. a million times, and I crack up every time. Right. Yeah, it's it, thanks. I mean, I... I'm a big fan of B. Arthur. You know, before Golden Girls, she was in Maud, which was a spinoff of All in the Family. And I, I'm, I'm a huge fan of, of hers. I thought uh, she was edgy, but she was funny nonetheless. Um, you know, I, I also like some of the older. I, Dick Van Dyke show, you know, remains, you know, one of my very favorites with Dick Van Dyke and a young Mary Tyler Moore. I, I love the Mary Tyler Moore show. I thought that was kind of a classic one a, as well. These shows that just that just make you smile and have kind of... This timelessness. I actually, the other day, I was I was actually channel surfing, and I came upon you know what I think a lot of people, at least of a certain generation, would argue is the best comedy ever, which is the I Love Lucy shows. And I, I hadn't seen them for quite a while, and I understand sometimes they might look a little bit dated and all, and they might be a little bit stereotypical. But at the same time, you you watch that and you realize what a good show that was. Lori in Milwaukee. Lori, you're on WTMJ. Hi. Hi, Lori. How you doing, Joe? I'm, I'm good. What do you think? Your fa- best TV show of all time? Third, well, I don't know if it's my favorite of all time, but Third Rock from the Sun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that it's, was... it's rewatchable. It's, you know, just about how people are and just funny, funny I, stuff. Well, and, you know, and such a... <laughs> Such an interesting concept of aliens, you know, right. coming in and settling there. I used to love that show as well. Now, thanks. I mean, all, all kind of good choices. Number of people are taking us back in time. Leave it to Beaver. Um, the honeymooners. You can't end a segment like this without talking about um, the Andy Griffith show, which, which I think was just a great situation comedy, especially the first five years when you had Don Knotts in it. I think that was another show that probably stayed on the air too long. Bottom line is. It's something you can discuss over the dinner table, but the Big Bang Theory clearly, I think, is going to have a role. I mean, it's clearly has been incredibly successful. It's going to be a TV show that's discussed for decades and decades, and that's um, in its last season. It's 2.54. When we come back, we'll find out what John and Melissa have on their minds for Wisconsin's Afternoon News. Please stick around.